what would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. It's one thing to have a healthy, fulfilling sex life when life is smooth sailing, right? It's a completely different thing when the waters get rocky. Today, I'm so pleased to be joined by Dr. Gabby Gutierrez, who specializes in a rare sector of the sex therapy field known as onco-sexology. You'll learn what that is, common challenges people and couples face after a cancer diagnosis, how we can all better navigate sex and intimacy through difficult times and more. With Dr. Megan Fleming's help, we'll also answer a question from a listener who's feeling pretty self-conscious about her results from her breast augmentation. If you enjoy what you hear today, please hit that subscribe button in your podcast app if you haven't. I would also so appreciate a rating and review. All of that really helps me and my guests reach more people and support more people. I received such a thoughtful one on Apple Podcasts recently from someone who heard my interview on Confidently Insecure, which, by the way, was so, so fun. Uh, This person shared that they are healing from an abusive relationship and starting to chip away at lingering shame. So if you are listening now, B-R-I-I, I won't share the rest of your name, please hear this. I'm so proud of you and just in awe of you. Please keep doing the work that you're doing. It is so important. I'm so, so grateful that this show found you at the right time. Now, I'm so pleased to welcome Dr. Gabby Gutierrez to the show, a marriage and family therapist who recently received a PhD in medical family therapy with an emphasis on onco-sexology. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Before we get into what your field and your expertise actually is all about. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey to this point in your life. What do you recall most about the messages you learned about sex and sexuality growing up? Growing up? um, I actually grew up in a very open household. Um, I'm an only child, so I got a lot of direction my whole life um, around, hey, it's okay if you want to talk to us about the birds and the bees, if you're with a boy or a girl or whatever, whomever. Um, so I did have a very open childhood regarding sexuality and a lot of topics around sex, nudity, body parts. They were very normalized and I was able to kind of learn my body from a functional standpoint, which isn't always completely um, typical for my ethnicity because I'm Latina. I'm half Mexican and half Salvadorian. And so sometimes those homes can be very conservative. Um, so I, I feel pretty lucky that I was able to not grow up with a ton of shame around my body. So you could ask questions if Mm -hmm. you wanted to, and they were well-received. No one said, you shouldn't talk about that. Absolutely. Um, I did receive some messages of shame from school and things like that, and I realized, oh, maybe my body's something to be embarrassed about. But at home, that was not the message at all. So I feel really thankful that my parents were so open. I think I was embarrassed in the beginning going, why are you talking to me about this? But um, <laughs> um, but when push came to shove and it was time to have someone to open up to, I knew that my parents were really safe figures for that, which was nice. That's huge. It is huge. I feel really fortunate. I know not everybody has that. Yeah. It must have been interesting to realize that other people weren't getting that same support. Absolutely. And I think a lot of it, too, as I'm reflecting on this right now, my dad was a therapist as well. And my both my parents worked in colleges and university settings. So I think that they were a little bit more progressive and with it, with the young people than maybe um, other parents or even people of my culture. Um, so it was... Uh, really educational and, and, like I said, fortunate. Did that inspire you to pursue this work, kind of the contrast between the more informative, comprehensive information you were allowed to have and and kind of what was lacking? Surprisingly, no. My parents had nothing to do with why I got into this field. I actually started out um, singing professionally, and so I really wanted to become a singer and do those things, Um, but that world was very lonely for me. Um, and 
my dad was a therapist, like I said, so I was like, that is the uncoolest job <laughs> in the world. No one wants to be like their parents, per se, um, at least in the beginning. Uh, and it wasn't until kind of my personal journey getting out of the entertainment industry um, that I started exploring therapy and wanting to know more about deeper connections. And um, I've always been very interested in sex. And maybe that aspect, the interest, might have been inspired by such an open conversation at home. Um, but career-wise, it didn't happen until much later in life that I realized, hey, these are conversations I enjoy having. Anytime I talk to talk about sex or intimacy with other friends, it's something that we always laugh about. And it's always an uplifting conversation. Um, talking about, you know, consensual-related sex um, you know, we can get into abuse and, and rape and those aspects of sexuality, if we want to even call it that, um, at a, a different time. But I've noticed that the topic of sex always makes people really uplifted for the most part. Yeah. So I it said, should be hey. a really fun topic. Yeah. 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 And I know we we do need to address all the dark parts mm -hmm. of, as you said, it's 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 one of those things that shouldn't be a part of sexuality, mm -hmm. but because our culture and all these different mm -hmm. forces that kind of bring the negativity in. We can't not talk about exactly. it. Exactly. But what's mm -hmm. beautiful is that the heart of what it's all about is is all about pleasure and mm -hmm. it's really positive. And I Absolutely. think having an upbeat conversation around it that that isn't infused with shame is exactly. healing for a lot of people. Absolutely. And understanding really the biology as well that it's really not much different between men and women um there's a lot of social constructs between men and women around the biology of sexuality but it's not much different at all a lot of that has been debunked but it's not a sexy theory so it's not really out there as often yes. I think. thank you for saying that i would get so <laughs> enraged even long before girl boner started or i started pursuing work in the sexuality field it just would grate on me when I would, because it doesn't make practical sense. Mm -hmm. And it didn't match up with the things that I was observing and feeling and seeing around me. Exactly. And to have it be so divisive and say, mm -hmm. you're supposed to be this way because you were born with this genitalia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. so goofy. Exactly. It is a little goofy. Yeah. So so tell us what oncosexuality is. Yeah. Um, so um, oncosexology, uh, it's, uh, if you kind of break down the parts of the word, so onco is cancer and then sexology is the study of sexuality. Um, this term was coined not that long ago, only in 2009. Uh, and it's because very little research is still in this area. Um, but there's been research that has been coming out where we're finally kind of asking patients, hey, during your cancer experience, what has been the most challenging parts or maybe topics that aren't being addressed? And time and time again, patients were saying, well, actually, my intimate relationship, my sexuality, my body image, um, these are things that aren't being addressed with my doctor. And they're not necessarily conversations I want to have with my doctor, maybe a behavioral health person, but there's not a lot of behavioral health people in hospitals, especially cancer centers. So where do we go? We have a system that doesn't welcome conversations about sexuality. And so there's no room usually for a behavioral health person. But as kind of research was coming out, we we're saying, oh, okay, well, we can maybe bring in a social worker. Can social workers address this? Perhaps um, we have some clinical social workers, some non-clinical social workers. Then there's family therapists, and family therapists are brand new into the field. And there's sort of this um, family sciences world that include psychologists, um, social worker, marriage and family therapists. And we finally kind of put that knowledge into something and said, hey, well, why don't we call it something oncosexology where we're able to actually address these behavioral health issues around sexual quality of life. So um, and that's kind of where we are. We know it's important, but we don't really know beyond that what patient needs are. Just thinking about the questions that people tend to hear mm -hmm. when they start some sort of treatment, medication, all of the quality of life issues that mm -hmm. we hear about tend to be things like, do you have dry mouth? Mm -hmm. Are you, how is your energy? Mm -hmm. Maybe are you sleeping? Just generally how you feel. Yes. But I don't think there is that space. And and as you said, so many people don't feel comfortable bringing it up to a mm -hmm. doctor who's not saying it, mm -hmm. which really can make you feel very isolated, probably, like you're the only one who's experiencing this. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. And I, I'd say that's one of the number one things that patients do say to me is, I know we're probably the only ones that are having these types of questions or, um, you know, people probably, doctors don't have time to answer a question about if my vagina is going to dry up or, you know, because I work in 
maybe I should clarify. I work in gynecological uh, oncology and breast cancer. And I work with other cancers, but my primary two are breast and gyne. So I'm dealing a lot with reproductively related cancers. Um, so a lot of women have questions about what's going to be happening to their arousal, um, their desire. And then in therapy, I like to talk about the difference between the two. Um, you know, if the medication uh, is going to affect vaginal dryness, um, if there's going to be pain, you know, uh, if they can even have sex on chemo, uh, if they're having chemo. So um, if they even want to. So there's a lot of different questions around that that they're not sure who to ask. And it is kind of weird being a behavioral health person in a cancer center because um, a lot of the questions feel very medical. So I don't feel like I'm completely in my scope all the time. But then the doctors, the medical doctors, don't always feel like they're in their scope either. So we sort of have this collaborative conversation where we're sort of trying to come up with answers together. But it is such a new field that I don't know if there's a right answer. So we're kind of figuring that out, how that works when two professions come together to treat a patient with this. It seems issue. really important because we aren't compartmentalized yeah. beings, right? Mm-hmm. That And that people have different specialties, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. But to be able to have a team working with you Absolutely. seems really important. And that is the direction that I think a lot of healthcare is wanting to go in. But it does require a lot of systemic change, policy change, um, all the really exciting stuff that I'm bringing up right now. Uh, (laughs) um, Because, like I said, there's really not a lot of room in the current system to kind of bring in other professionals outside of the medical discipline. But we know it's necessary. We're just trying to figure out how that can happen. And I feel like my where I'm where I'm working, we have a nice start for integration. That's huge. So it is huge. Even that start, uh, that conversation is happening and we're trying to say, hey, what does the system look like when we're kind of involving a medical professional and a behavioral health person together? What does that treatment look like? Yeah, yeah. So could you walk us through what might happen? Let's let's take a, a theoretical person sure. is going through, let's say, a gynecological cancer. Yeah. So what would kind of your intake, your first um, appointment consist of? Sure. So they start out in a medical exam visit and um, they get a distress screen to kind of say, hey, where's your level of distress? And like you said in the beginning, it was really assessing physical symptoms or sleep hygiene, things like that, or maybe just generalized stress or depression. Um, but there's a team of social workers and I um, that got together to say, hey, what's the best way to maybe address more extensive problems. So we added a few things to that distress screen to include sexual needs and among other uh, other needs, practical needs. But we got that sexual aspect on there, which I thought was really great. And I think a lot of us were really proud to put that on there because it sends a message to the patient if there's an opportunity for conversation. Mm-hmm. And silence on that topic also sends a message. So Yes, to, it normalizes it. it. It can, silence on the topic, I think, right, hinders normalizing yes or saying you can't ask that here yes where when it's on a distress screen they're saying oh this hospital talks about this okay maybe yeah. i can bring that up so there the patient can circle which issue um or issues pertain to them and then uh usually a nurse or the doctor will send me a referral and say hey can you come visit this patient either right now in the exam room or can you call them or set up an appointment and then um let's just say it's a sexually related issue Um, they have the option to either come in as an individual or come in as a couple. I prefer that they come in as a couple if they are currently in a relationship. And um, I'll kind of get a sense of, okay, what aspect of sexuality is a big concern to you? Is that a hard question for people to be open about? Or do people speak kind of freely once they have the, the permission? I would say it's more the latter. And I think the practitioner, the provider's comfort level gauges the patient comfort mm, level. That makes sense. So if you're uncomfortable, they're going to be uncomfortable. So often I'm very explicit. I say, you know, hey, what's been going on for you? Um, do you feel anxiety, depression, sexually related issues? I really like just list them all out. Which one do you want to talk about? Because I'm open to any. And and oftentimes um, I'll, I'll share my expertise is actually in um, oncosexology. So if this is a a conversation you want to have, please feel free to bring that up. Mm. If it's not pertinent to you, 
we don't have to talk about it. Um, but I always really like to initiate the conversation because uh, that's also in the research that a huge reason these conversations aren't happening despite the need is because the provider is not bringing it up and patients feel providers should initiate that conversation. Yeah, yeah. What are some of the most common concerns that people have when you ask that question? Sure. Um, so a lot of people want to know sort of what I was saying a little bit earlier. When I'm on treatment, will this change the way um, I get aroused? Will I feel arousal towards my partner anymore? Will I even want my partner anymore? Um, what if my partner doesn't like what my body looks like after surgery? Um, what if I'm going to be alone forever after this? Um, who's going to want me after this surgery? That's that's mm. a big one. Who would even want me now? Oh, that hurts. Oh, it, it's painful. Yeah, that one's painful because to be reduced to a body part that that's somehow where all your worth sits is unfortunate narrative. Mm. Um, so that's obviously one that we really address, making sure that that's not the whole sense of a, a gender identity, whether that's male, female, you know, because a lot of males also um, identify with their penis. And when that's no longer functioning in the way that they've known, um, that can feel really demasculating. Yeah, there's such a um, performance pressure, yes. it seems, around, yes. especially this is what makes you a man. If, if you're a man with a penis, you're like supposed exactly. to be hard all the time. And, exactly. Yeah. And then for women, a lot of it not necessarily isn't performance. Like it would be more for a man. It's more self-worth. Mm. Like like I said, that question, who's going to even want me now? Mm. Um, so that's a big one. And then other topics that come up are infidelity. Uh, when I first started working at the cancer center, I would say, ooh, about 90% of my couples were coming for infidelity. I'm not saying that that's a st statistic in yeah, yeah. real life. It could have been coincidence that I was yeah. getting that many. But it is something that does happen and, and for a number of reasons, not because they're not wanted, but usually communication somehow stops or... Uh, we stop trusting each other because my body has changed. My insecurity lens has taken over. Right, because mm -hmm. there's so much fear around saying something so vulnerable, exactly. like, I'm afraid no one will want me. So the problem isn't actually the sex itself or the lack of sex itself. Exactly. It's, right? It's these underlying issues. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because uh, one of the things when patients see my fly, I have a little flyer that says, hey, we do uh, sex therapy here. They say, oh, well, that's not me. We're not having sex or uh, we haven't had sex in so long or when I'm doing chemo, I'm not going to want to have sex. So I really like to emphasize sex therapy really extends beyond intercourse. It could be anything regarding body image or even role expectations, different forms of intimacy, whether that be holding hands, going to the grocery store. I mean, lots of different things we can explore that extend far beyond intercourse. So that's something that I really like to make clear because uh, I think a lot of couples give up at intercourse. Yes, because mm -hmm. sex is more than that, right? So it makes sense that exactly. sex therapy. And it's interesting that they would say we're not having sex, therefore mm -hmm. we don't need therapy mm -hmm. when not that everyone needs to have sex, but that alone says something if they were sexually active mm -hmm. and now they are not, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and I don't want to assume that it's something that they don't like, but there obviously is a story there. Yes. There's a story there. And I, as a therapist, believe, you know, I want everyone to come to me. Yeah. Um, but some people are completely content with where they are, or at least yeah, you know, they're yeah. accepting where they are. And you know, they don't want to work out anything beyond that acceptance, which is fine with me. If you're mm. in a content accepting place, um, great. Yeah. You know, uh, but if you're feeling like you wish it was somehow different or that there could be changes to make the connection yeah. different yeah. or if we're missing the connection, grieving the connection, that's where I like to kind of come in. And sometimes I try to use different language beyond sex. I always use the word sex because I want to normalize it and I bring it in there. But I say sex, togetherness, connection, intimacy. I bring up all the words because one of them often triggers a little bit something different in each patient. Mm, that's really interesting. So can somebody going through chemo have pleasurable sex? Hmm. Okay. So it's not always recommended to have intercourse when they're on chemo. And this is a conversation I always feel a little bit weird about because it feels a little bit medical so I don't want to over speak but um, I have collaborated with a ton of the ton of our doctors and our nurse practitioners to get as much insight as possible and the reason it's not always advised is because 
your immune system becomes really compromised during chemo, and there can be a lot of exchanging of bacterias. And so is it okay if I actually share an example question that Absolutely, I've Absolutely. Okay. So I had one man um, ask me, his wife was the one in chemo, and uh, right, was he the one in chemo or she? Oh, no, no. He was the one in chemo. Okay. okay. And they had said to him, you know, we, we don't recommend that you have intercourse with her because if you ejaculate, she can, you can transfer some of the chemo. We don't want to do that. Okay. So he then asked about oral sex. He says, well, is there a way for me to orally pleasure my wife? And um, I said, that's a good question. That's an interesting alternative. Can we do something like that? So I went around and I asked about eight different practitioners what their advice was. Because I said, can this patient come to you for that? They were like, well, we sent him to you for that because we don't know. Interesting. And so I said, okay, well, what would you recommend around, you know, oral sex just medically? What might be the problem there or is there no problem? And they said, well, the problem would be that especially the vagina is very close to the anus and there can be a lot of bacterial exchange there. So they really wouldn't recommend doing that because of the compromised immune system. So I shared that with the patient. He said, oh, and he's disappointed. Okay, well, I don't have intercourse. I don't have oral sex. So what are my other options here? You know, and I, so that's when I kind of brought them in at that point. And I said, okay, let's kind of explore where togetherness may lie outside of just physical acts and what the purpose of sex and intimacy is for you in the marriage or yeah, if they were married. Um, and, uh, you know, we can kind of seek where else that purpose may lie, at least for now while we're in chemo and knowing that this can be a temporary solution, that it's mm. not something forever, yeah, um, but just something temporary to kind of make sure that you guys are staying connected and close and not feeling like you're missing out. But there is, I know that there's nothing that necessarily replaces intercourse. Um, there can be things that come close to it and we're able to kind of gain that intimacy, but a mm. lot of couples actually do grieve the intercourse aspect of it. That makes sense. It does. Yeah. Because it's a very special thing for a lot of people. Exactly. What about with condoms or barriers? Like I, I interviewed someone who... Uh, created laurels, the their single-use latex panties, for example, uh, that create a barrier mm-hmm. or or a male or female condom. Mm-hmm. Like, would that make it possible, or is it still not advised? So that would be a question that I would always defer, probably back to the doctor, because each person's cancer experience is so different. So, based on their body chemistry, where they are in treatment, I would always say, great question. I probably am not the best person to answer if you're allowed to or not. Um, your doctor would be the best. Your oncologist or, yeah, you know, would be the best person to defer. I wish I could answer that question, but um, I think that'd be a bit irresponsible of me to. I always say appreciate that. it when a healthcare practitioner of any kind says, "I don't know." I love it because I just feel like it's so honest to say that's that's not something I can answer or or literally. I need to learn this too. Right. If it's if it is in your that's expertise, that's a great question. I think yeah. it's just a beautiful thing. Thank you. Nobody knows everything, and <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and it yeah. is. And your question is not uncommon. It's one that is in such a gray zone that both of us, meaning the medical doctor and me, sometimes feel uncomfortable answering because we're not sure which field it lies in. It's one of that those gray areas, which is another reason why I really wanted to go into this field because there really was no absolute medical or behavioral health, sexual quality of life really goes in both fields. And it's an example of, I think, the reason and need for the need of integrated health care. So. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. I love what you brought up about asking people what sex means to them. Because mm-hmm. if you only know physical intimacy and closeness to be intercourse, or that's like your mm-hmm. main way of experiencing it, I could see how that could cause a great divide Absolutely. if all of a sudden you can't experience it for some exactly. time. So I imagine couples can really grow through this process mm-hmm. in ways that maybe they didn't even anticipate that there was room for growth, like understanding yes. that sex is more than that. Absolutely. And I think that's something that I really love to share with couples too, that oftentimes if they limit their definition of sex to intercourse and that's the problem, then that's where the solution ends, right? So I really do like to help expand definitions, whatever that couple wants to, you know, jive with me about that. What other aspects of sex or intimacy did they enjoy that wasn't necessarily always um, 
penetrative for heterosexual couples, for example, um, you know, that it actually is an opportunity to, to start re-exploring things that maybe we weren't feeling courageous enough to before because, oh, well, we've been together for 20 years. I shouldn't have to ask these questions. Well, now we have a reason <laughs> to start asking questions or yeah. you always kind of do this to me and I don't actually really like that. Mm. You know, so we can actually like you were kind of alluding to opening up this ab- new avenue of communication that really didn't exist before the cancer. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the power. I think what I hear from people who go to some kind of whether it's couples therapy, sex therapy mm-hmm. as a couple so often it seems that the thing you think you're going in for is just one little, it's almost like the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. Or in therapy in general, in my experience, I've always found that there's so much more to discover that you have a reason for going in, but you never quite know where that journey will go. Absolutely. And I never quite know where it's going either. And um, the way I often do therapy is just through a lot of curious questioning, um, which I think really generates authentic, grounded, fresh conversation. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree with you. I have a question from a listener that I think ties in so well with these topics, especially because you mentioned body image, which I think I know from hearing from my listeners and speaking with them. This is a huge, huge issue, whether people have gone through breast cancer or are just living their daily lives. This question came from Deborah, who wrote this. I had a double mastectomy after learning I have the BRCA, the BRCA gene, and I was terrified of getting breast cancer, as many of my relatives have. I thought I would try larger breasts because why not? But now I don't really feel like myself. I'm self-conscious about them, especially on dates with new people and during sex, the few times I've had it since the procedure. I thought they might grow on me, but it's been six months and I'm not sure what to do. This feels superficial, especially compared to the cancer stuff, but it has been surprisingly difficult. Deborah, thank you so much for your question. I sense a lot of brave vulnerability in that, that it was difficult for you to ask. So thank you. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Deborah, thank you so much for your question. And I just want to say I'm always so appreciative for all these questions because not only hopefully am I helping you, but I get feedback um, about how other people have listened and the impact that it has for them and the benefit that they're receiving as well. So that just really warms my heart. So coming back to your specific situation, first of all, you know, it's not an easy thing to learn that you have... um, the BRCA, the BRCA gene, and because, again, anybody who has that gene does have a higher increased risk of breast cancer, and like you said, you have had relatives who've had it, and I imagine passed away from breast cancer, and so, of course, you want to take this very seriously, and this is not an easy decision um, to preventatively have a double mastectomy, to have peace of mind, right, that you don't have to worry that this is going to happen to you. So, But I can also imagine psychologically, none of that is easy. You know, making a decision to proactively and preventively uh, remove your breasts is not an easy one to make. Um, And what's striking here, you know, I think I, I think it's awesome that, you know, in your mind's eye, you're like, oh, you know, a little bit bigger would be sexy or more pleasure. And so you invited and wanted a little bit larger breast size. And you know, six months in may feel like a long time to you, but I'm also saying it was probably good two to three months, you know, in recovery, um, sort of the bruising, the scar tissue and all that stuff. And so I guess I want to say, give yourself some time, um, at least a year, probably more like two, you have the rest of your life. In fact, that's exactly why you made the decision to have this double mastectomy, right, is to protect the, um, you know, to, to live a long life. And so, um, you know, I know it can feel like it's already been a long time, but I honestly think in my experience, six months is just like the beginning. And what one thing you mentioned here that strikes me is to be distressed by it on some level feels superficial, especially compared to cancer. And what I would say is like, you know, this is an important piece. It's like, it's still real for you. So it, it, it put it in comparison to it, like I have had colleagues who are like, um, 
members, their family members of Holocaust survivors. And so when they had difficulties in their own lives, they almost sort of minimized whatever was happening in their life because how did that compare? But the reality is that's a completely different experience and journey. You are in your own. So do not minimize your feelings or experience because they are really, they are valid and equally need to be looked at. So, you know, a few things I would say is, you know, how much are, at this point, it's like, I sort of sort of like it's a mental hook. You're in your mind distressed about it and thinking, quote unquote, they're too big. And the way that you're thinking about it, I sort of call those as intrusive thoughts, that there's nothing sexy about that. You know, I, I often say like a cartoon bubble above your head. What is your inner dialogue? What are your thoughts? And the way that you think about your breasts right now is a turnoff, right? Long even before you meet a partner or he's touching them. And I have no idea, you know, on any level, has the breast sensation changed um, in terms of your nipples? Did you enjoy nipple play before? Have you ever explored it? You know, do you even allow yourself to explore it now or because you're feeling uncomfortable? Do you sort of, you know, push men away from exploring and touching your breasts? So, you know, there may be a whole level of sensation you haven't yet explored. And I think, you know, on some level, I don't know how much you have explored individually and on your own, just sort of head to toe, exploring sensation and touch and, you know, working with visualization. Can you really see whether or not your breasts as they are now are symbolic in a sense, bigger breasts, a bigger sex life, right? Inviting more of what you want, because that's why you made the decision in the first place. Um, so I think give yourself time and recognize because six months out, you've got this negative view or idea that that our mindset is everything. It's our big, biggest sex organ. So in and of itself, that may be contributing to the part of you that doesn't want to really own and accept like a part of you wanted this, right? And of course, it's going to feel new and different because they're not your breasts. And I think on some level, and this is important, you know, if you look at these new breasts, do they in a sense, represent or remind you of cancer, right? Because talk about the biggest turnoff ever. So, you know, I wish we could have a dialogue because I think what we're thinking is so incredibly important. And I'm not sure sort of where your mind's at around this, but I can imagine um, the way you're, you know, asking this question, the negativity is seeped in such that you're not seeing what is also true or what may be really great or positive about this change. Because again, I think it is very linked and associated to something negative that you didn't really want. And in some ways, maybe symbolically, that's taken on meaning. So, you know, what I would say is give this more time that certainly speaking to a psychologist or a psychotherapist might be helpful just to help you unpack sort of the meaning that you've attached Um but again, can you get into the headset of what you wanted, what feels good about this experience? And that ultimately, listen, you are your own expert. If, say, two years from now, you really feel like, you know what, I've given it everything. I've worked on my mindset. I've worked on sensation, exploration, and I still feel, quote unquote, they're too big. You always have the option of revision, right? But I would certainly say, give yourself, your body, your mind time that you're not even entertaining that choice, right? In your mind's eye, say, I'm not even going to contemplate that or think about that for the next at least six months, probably next year, because I really want to give yourself, a, your mind, a break from the sense of rejection of it. And if you can really step into the acceptance um, and seeing, wow, what might be great about this, step into that mindset for at least the next six months to a year and then revisit. And as always, I would love to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. She brought up some really good points I thought that so many people can can benefit from because whenever there's a change in our body, whether we chose it or we didn't, or maybe we're considering a change in our physique, um, some of those questions to ask ourselves, like what do, in this case, what do your breasts mean to you? What do your nipples mean to you? Mm -hmm. What came to mind for you as you, as you heard this question? There were a lot of uh, yeah, I had a lot of thoughts. I thought Dr. Megan brought up uh, a lot of really interesting angles, too, that I I always love to hear other um, professionals' thought process because we all kind of contribute something alike and different. Um, and I loved hearing, like you said, too, the nipple plan. What was the significance to you before the um, surgery, which I really appreciated Dr. Megan bringing up? 
Um, I also really related with when Dr. Megan said, I wish we could engage in a dialogue because that's exactly what came up for me initially. It's really hard to make an assessment of what to do without actually knowing more context. And so some of the questions that had come up with me, if that's or had come to me, if that's okay for me to share. Please, yeah. Um, I, if I had that patient in front of me, I would really want to know a few things. I'd want to know if there's ever a time that she actually does feel good about her breasts. Um, when she first got them, was she excited or was it just an immediate, oh, no? Um, does she find herself not liking them only in partnered situations or is that something that she um, feels all the time? Um, and, you know, she has the option, just like what Dr. Megan was saying, to either kind of wait and see what happens or, you know, she says, you know, I'm really confident and this is not a good fit for my body. I don't like it. I'm not happy. There's always the option to revisit with a surgeon saying, hey, I need a follow-up visit for this reconstruction. It's just really impeding on my well-being. My quality of life has not been improved, you know, um, and, and, I, and I guess I'd want to know, too, what the purpose of getting them big was, mm, um, because yeah. she said, why not? Well, that didn't give me a lot of information as to what inspired the big Anyways, I have some guesses maybe why, like what Dr. Megan was also kind of throwing some ideas as well. Um, but I'd really want to know that, that engaging in the dialogue with the patient to kind of get just more context. That is such a good question. Yeah. Yeah. To really think, because why not? It almost sounds like there is an assumption that everybody must think that larger breasts are better. Mm-hmm. Right. And just to unpack that and to kind of and, and also you brought up the confidence. That's so important because I do think that. Megan often says we are our own expert, right? Like we have an inner compass. I feel like we have a, a gut feeling. She yes. might be so sure. In which case, as you said, maybe it's possible, too, that the doctor might say, hey, I'm happy to adjust it. Right. Um, who knows? And I, I, and that's why the very first thing I would want the patient to do is to get in touch with the reason for the reconstruction. Because that way, it's not just kind of guessing which size feels good. It's understanding what the significance of the reconstruction is and what she's hoping to seek from that surgery, what was she, what results she was hoping to feel from that. Because then we can kind of go around the value system versus the breast size. Um, and I also wanted to say something like that Dr. Megan had touched on too, is that this issue is definitely not superficial. And I think a lot of times patients feel, oh, if I'm not talking about the abnormal cancer cell that I'm talking about anything else, it's not significant. But impact of the cancer is often named the primary challenge of the cancer, not just the physical symptom. It's the impact cancer has on their relationships. They're facing their mortality. Um, So the psychological, emotional health is often just as important as the medical aspect of things for many, many patients. That's really interesting and, and makes a lot of sense, too, that it would bring up all of these different fears and beliefs and doubts and mortality. I mean, that's huge. And especially because cancer isn't something that people are just dying from anymore. Now, there are some cancers that have unfortunate prognoses, right? That like pancreatic cancer, for example, there's not a lot of um, resources as much as we would like. And that one really is a, a hard one. But something like breast cancer, we really have high, high survivorship rates. I mean, up until stage three and stage four is not nearly as positive prognoses as stage one, two, and three. But um, you're still looking at a fairly high prognoses, good prognoses for them for survivorship. And uh, we're dealing with a chronic illness at this point, something that does inform our life for long periods of time, which is something that never really existed before. We were just dealing with the acute cancer, something that was just sort of life-threatening and people are dying from it. Not anymore. Yeah, living with, with cancer illness. is a phrase we hear often, isn't yes, it? Yes, living with cancer. I always love to share with patients too, you know, if we're in treatment, there's absolutely ways that we can be empowered over our cancer. We can live with cancer. There's life after cancer. But all of these aspects, you know, we are important to touch on because they're, they impact our life. They change our life, right? And it's not just the medical part of cancer that rocks our world. It's this, like I said, emotional, psychological aspect as well. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Could we talk a bit about something you brought up that I think is so significant and, and again, has some universal kind of takeaways? Because I think we've all 
most of us have felt at some point that maybe we aren't desirable or we won't be anymore. Or I think you said they won't want me anymore. What are some of the the steps that that a person can take who's in that place? So each person's journey getting out of that place is different, but I do like to always start from a place of there's always going to be messages regardless of cancer that say you're not enough. How have you overcome those messages before or had you not overcome? Um, And so there's a a word of advice that my dad gave to me when I was younger, and I've really carried this into my therapy. Um, And that's, so you know hair dye? Yeah. You go to any Target or professional salon, there's every possible color of hair dye there. And the reason there's every color is because there's a message that says whatever yours is, it's not the right one for you. Okay, so there's a lot of messages that we get, regardless of the cancer, that says your body isn't the depiction of beauty and it should be different. So I always like to kind of understand how patients overcame those beauty standards already and how they were kind of able to find some inner strength or some comfortability with their bodies or hair or whatever it be, their weight, um, and kind of use some of those strengths and apply that to the cancer narrative. Um, Some patients do say, well, you know, but weight or hair color, that's like a normal struggle. You know, I'm having mastectomy scars and, you know, they're really ugly. And who's going to want me um, with these ugly scars? And I always talk about, well, what kind of partner would we be with if that was what your value was being based on? Mm. So it kind of allows us to actually have the courage, even though it's a, a little bit of a harder process, to have the courage to kind of weed some people out that maybe we normally wouldn't have or, you know, identify toxicity in others a little bit quicker than we would have before. So those yeah. are just a couple of things that we can talk about and, you know, to sort of say, hey, body image isn't the only thing that determines value, but there are ways to also draw from previous inner strengths how you kind of gain some more positive body image in the past too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to stress in general, I imagine stress is a huge piece of this puzzle as yes. well. People, I, I know that for some people, stress, sex is very relieving when they're feeling stressed and they're drawn to it. Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, they might find it stress relieving um, or any kind of physical intimacy helpful, but the stress kind of puts up a wall almost where it's like it it makes sex less interesting because they're so stressed out. Mm-hmm. How do we navigate sex and intimacy when we are feeling completely maxed out and stressed? Well, um, I guess it would come down to the trust and safety with the person we're having sex with um, to kind of communicate and identify where that stress is coming from. Is that stress coming from the actual sex itself? Is it an outside stressor? And once again, I had kind of said this previously, what is the purpose of sex for you in this relationship? Really getting down to understand that. And and are both partners sharing that perspective? Because we might actually find out we're utilizing sex in a really different way. And if we're utilizing sex to combat stress, then we're really not, that's not completely fair to our partners because that doesn't always include the connection with our partner. It's a, a one-way purpose for mm. sex. Almost like masturbation with a person, (laughs) which actually, I imagine one thing that occurred to me when you're talking about um, penetration or intercourse not being Mm -hmm. something that a lot of people during chemo could do, for Mm -hmm. example, masturbation in the same room. Right. Could be a form of emotional intimacy and physical intimacy without touching. Yes, absolutely. So if people are wanting to still have a togetherness experience but they can't necessarily be to get you know physically together with each other that there can be even though there's some space between us we can still have that connection I love that you brought that up because there are so many modes to connect and it's just we do have to think outside the box and I know a lot of people are really scared of mutual masturbation right because it's often a solo activity and oh do I make weird faces when I'm masturbating or things like that but once again a really exciting opportunity to explore something new with each other and I think it can be kind of great to have something vulnerable that connects us together, right? So rediscovering vulnerability is also super sexy and really intimate that I 
absolutely would encourage couples Mm. to do. What are some of the rewards that people get working with you, with a with a sex therapist, when they are going through cancer, um, some kind of chronic disease, when they do this work and they commit to it, what are the things they can look forward to? Oh my gosh! Okay, I'm going to try and reiterate things that have been said to me versus what my own thoughts are on the rewards, because I like to kind of gauge that from what the patient shares sure, with me. Sure, please. So I think. The first one that's popping into my head, I think there's a few, but I'm going to name the ones that are coming to my head. I had a couple um, who was really trying to seek normality through sex because really cancer brings a lot of chaos into the marriage, into their life. And so they seek the things that they think that they can control. And so they find, okay, well, our sexual relationship doesn't always have to be impacted by sex. Let's try and like maintain having sex three days a week and that'll be normal for us. And... um, I was working with that couple and I said, three days a week, that's a lot of pressure um, to put like a number on this is what's going to equal normal for us. And is that normality, was that normality before the cancer? And they said, well, we think it was something around there. And I said, so you never counted before? Mm -hmm. And they said, no. And I said, okay, well, I don't know if you realize you're doing this, but in seeking normality, you're doing something completely unnormal for yourself. So in identifying that, that really became a realization for the couple that they were really putting a lot of pressure on what normality was supposed to be for them. And so I think the reward there would be some identification of something that um, wasn't previously realized. Uh, We were able to then open another avenue, like I said, for other modes of communication and and connection and togetherness that uh, maybe they hadn't explored before. Uh, I think another reward is just having a space for honest communication because sometimes at home it can feel a little bit embarrassing or shameful to say, hey, I need something different. Because especially the patient, they feel like I'm already changing your life upside down. The last thing you need is for our sex life to change too. So it's really hard for me to bring this up. So oftentimes the therapist can bring it up, which kind of makes it go, oh, okay, well, I guess we'll talk about that now, you know, because then the therapist is the one that brings it up, not the couple. So Mm -hmm. it kind of makes a little bit less personal between the couple, but still opens a safe space for communication. Um, So those those are a couple things that are coming to my head, usually just a lot of honesty and debunking myths. That's awesome because those are so helpful <laughs> for all of us, I think. And and to know that you can go through cancer treatment or living with cancer and knowing that you can grow sexually in intimate ways um, with a partner or, or with your own self, you know, b- better embracing your body. And like you said, saying, do I want a partner who's not going to be accepting of someone who looks just like me. Right. Is that what I want my value to be based on? That really resonated. I I appreciate that. Tell us where people can learn more about you. Um, I know you're active on Instagram. Yes. And that's sort of mainly where I'm active um, at the moment. And my uh, handle is at sexpert underscore Gabby. And that's S-E-X-P-E-R-T underscore G-A-B-Y. Awesome. Um, And then you're also working, you've helped start a breast pain clinic. Yes. Oh, and I thank you for bringing that up. Um, It's, uh, it was actually really inspired by a patient that um, one of the surgeons I work with um, and I shared. And she said, are there any, once again, that isolated experience? I must be the only one experiencing this Mm. sexual related needs or this, in this case, breast pain. Oh my gosh. And we always said to each other, if I could put all the people that have the same issues as you in the room who's always said that, this was normalizing an experience. I can't even talk about how powerful that intervention is, not feeling alone. Feeling like someone can empathize with what I'm going through is so powerful in itself. No other therapy intervention in itself could you know, match that sometimes. Um, but that, that was inspired by a patient. And so we came together and collaborated and said, hey... What if we did what's called a share, a shared visit? And we saw a patient together that was dealing with breast pain and kind of so they can understand the overlap between a medical understanding and a behavioral health understanding. So how stress and medicine come together. Mm-hmm. And this is the first clinic of its kind that I know of. We looked in the research. We didn't really see anything 
specifically about breast pain and its correlation to stress. Um, so it's one of the first of its kind, and we w- would love to kind of expand on other ideas, but for now it's going to be breast pain. Um, and once again, just addressing this sort of gray area that's existed, and a lot of it is because historically medicine and mental health really decided to kind of go their own separate ways. And so for a long time, we've been informed by that theory that somehow the head and body are not one, but we are one vessel. Anything that is experienced mental health will have a physical consequence, right? And anything Mm -hmm. that's a physical consequence will absolutely have a psychological consequence. But we weren't putting the two and two together until very recently. So this breast clinic, I think, is a nice testament to collaborative, integrated healthcare, where we're addressing sort of a gray area issue and two doctors of two separate specialized fields coming together to treat a patient. Mm, awesome. Thank yeah. you for doing that work and and for joining me today. Thank you. Oh, I've loved this experience. Would you leave us with uh, a tip, one final tip on cultivating deeper intimacy for, for really anyone who's navigating some tough stuff right now? Absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that I really love to share with couples, whether they're in chronic illness or not, is that sex is just like any other aspect of a relationship that it has to grow. And I think a lot of times people think that, um, oh, I've had a lot of experience with sex, so I know what I want or, I, or, you know, I know what guys normally like or whatever it is, you know. And um, it's absolutely a fresh start with every partner. Um, I know for myself the things that I've enjoyed with one person is really different with another person and vice versa that this partner that I've had previously really liked this and this other partner really didn't like that Um, and so sometimes I just say hey I really encourage we have open safe communication and if it doesn't feel safe let's figure out why not Um, so we can really have some grounded multi-connected intimacy and sex Mm. so just allowing it to grow and it's okay if we're starting fresh yes growing Mm -hmm. that's huge that is huge i hope everybody takes that to heart and i hope everyone um learned a lot from this episode i feel like we can all learn so much from your expertise gabby and so yeah i think you're doing such vital work so thank you thank you again i would absolutely love to engage in any sort of conversation that anybody else would like to and i'm open and here for that beautiful beautiful so again everyone that is at sexpert underscore gabby on instagram you can also follow girl boner media on instagram and again if you haven't hit that subscribe button i hope you will you can also sign up for monthly extras at girlboner.org thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful girl boner embracing week Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com. <laughs>